morning. Our epistle lesson is coming from Colossians chapter 1, verse 9. We're going to read through chapter 2, verse 5. Pastor Chuck in our sermon in Romans, sermon series in Romans, has been reading about three verses at a time, so I figured I'd catch you up on your Bible reading plan this morning. Uh, you, picked a, you picked a good week to come. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of, worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Be you guys have been trained well. Uh, let's pray. Uh, gracious God, we thank you for this time. We thank you that you have called us, you have qualified us, you have equipped us. Would you let the truths of the gospel sink down deep that we may hold steadfast to the faith that was once proclaimed to us. Would you speak to us? Would you renew us? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, as John said, I'm Aldo. I work with uh, college students uh, at Reformed University Fellowship. Till about 10 minutes ago, I was working at the University of North Florida and UNF, and now I'm moving to the University of South Florida, USF, which is 
quite confusing. Um, but one of the things that happens when you work with RUF um, is it's kind of a long hiring process. One of the things you do is you go to RUF assessment, um, and it's to assess you for your um, capacities in campus ministry. It's like a week-long uh, job interview. Um, and so we flew out to Dallas, my wife and I out, out there, to um, commence this sort of week-long job interview. Um, and I got to be honest with you, this may tell you a little bit about me, um, but as we were flying out there, I was, I was feeling pretty confident. Uh, I had been working at the campus of UNF. I was, I was feeling good. I felt like things were going well. I had a little bit of a pep in my step, uh, as Chuck Colson would probably say. I might have had a little bit of young man syndrome kicking in a little bit, feeling some pride. I was coming in. I had a little bit of swag. I was feeling good. I checked into the hotel, and they handed me a packet with the week's events and activities. I'm flipping through the packet. We get to our hotel room, and my swag uh, quickly became sorrow. Thank you for the two of you that laughed at that. Uh, my swag quickly became sorrow because I opened the book, and I had gotten to the back where the biographies of all the other people who were being assessed were there. And I realized that everybody else seemed to have way better qualifications than me. It seemed like everybody else had gone to a really, really big elite uh, college. They had majored in the right things. They had then gone on to the seminary that I wish I had gotten into. They had worked with the professor that I wish I had worked under. They had, they had written great papers. They had studied great things. They had way more pastoral experience. They had everything that you would think would lead to success in college ministry. I mean, they just had it. I mean, even their portraits, they had these headshots. They were professional headshots. And I thought, that's going to look great on a fundraising newsletter. Like, people are going to want to give to those folks. My picture looked like a bad Facebook update. I was like, nobody is going to want to give to this. And I began to wonder, did I, am I really belong here? Did my name somehow get moved into the wrong pile? Am I going to make it through this week? And what I was really asking was, can God really use me? Can God really use me? And Paul, in this letter to the Colossians, is writing to a church that is dealing with the exact same thing. See, about 300 years before Christ, man, Colossae, the Colossians, they had it going on. They were economically um, powerful. The economy was booming. The city was strategically important. It was the gateway between east and west. If you were part of the Roman Empire and you wanted to get into the riches of the east, you had to go through Colossae. It was a center of trade. It was also a center of culture, a center of art, a center of philosophy where east and west would meet. They were strategically important, militarily significant. They were, population was booming. Everything was going right. They had it going on. But by the time of Jesus, and by the time when Paul wrote this letter, the city was in decline. The population was in free fall. The economy was in recession. The garrison had been withdrawn. The arts and the culture were basically abandoned. The city had been replaced by better and more accessible cities on the coast, like Ephesus. And so the city was in decline. And so the people there were beginning to feel a little bit of anxiety. In fact, Paul, 
who was famous for going to big cities, famous for his mission to cities. Paul would preach in Corinth and Athens and Ephesus, would go all through Asia Minor, traveling by foot to reach cities with the gospel. He looked at Colossae and he skipped it over. Paul never went to Colossae. He said, it's not significant enough for my ministry. I'm, I'm after the big cities. That was what Paul was after. In fact, not long after Paul wrote this letter, an earthquake destroyed the city. And the Romans, famous for their architecture, famous for their building campaigns, famous for their infrastructure, said it's cheaper to resettle the residents. Let's just move them somewhere else. It's not worth rebuilding the city. And even to this day, modern archaeologists have yet to excavate ancient Colossae. They say, what can we, what could we possibly learn that we haven't learned from Ephesus or Corinth or Athens. What could we learn? What's the point? It costs a lot of money. Why should we spend our time at Colossae? And so the Colossians could very easily be asking, can God really use us? Can God really use us in this town that's in free fall, a small little church that Paul had never visited? Is God really going to use us where we are, and this is where Paul finds them, and he writes what they need to know if God is going to use them in his kingdom. He writes about the Christian mystery, Christian maturity, and Christian ministry. Mystery, maturity, ministry. Three M's. I kept it simple for you. First, Christian mystery. Look at verse uh, 27. Um, well, let's look at 26. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. We've got to do a little context work here. Paul has just finished one of the great passages in the New Testament about Jesus. If you want to, if you want to pass ordination exams in the PCA, you ready? You better know... You better know Colossians chapter 1 about Jesus. This is the ultimate text where Jesus, Paul says Jesus is before all things. He's in all things. He sustains all things. He is the beginning, the head of the church. He is the one in which all things find their end and their purpose and their meaning. He is sustaining and upholding. He's the one at which every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. That is this Jesus. And Paul says, here's the mystery of Christianity. You ready? That Jesus is in you. He's in you. Paul doesn't say near you. He doesn't say with you. He doesn't say beside you. He doesn't even say close to you. No, he says in you. As near as you are to you, that's how close Jesus is to you. It means when you're falling asleep in church, when you're sitting in church, when you are anxious about the future, when you're feeling lonely, when you're not sure if God has really called you, he's in you. He's in you. When you believe in Jesus, God comes to dwell in you by faith. And I think what sometimes happens is we think, oh great, I believe in Jesus and now God tolerates me. God sort of keeps me at arm's length. I think the, the sort of way that we think about this is that, you know, there's uh, God and Jesus, they're kind of having a, a conversation, and God's like, okay, you know, I guess if you die and rise again and people believe in you, I'll let them into heaven. I don't really want to, but I will begrudgingly kind of have to. That 
God keeps us at arm's length, that he, he's tolerating us. But then, you know, what we got to do is we really got to dig down deep into some spiritual, build up our spiritual resume. And then maybe then we can actually get into the kingdom. And Paul says, no, 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 you don't understand. When you believe in Jesus, God doesn't just tolerate you. God doesn't just keep you at arm's length. God is not ashamed of you. No, no, no. In fact, God wants to come and be as near to you as you are to you. He wants to be as close to you as he can be. He comes and he dwells in you by faith. I have a four-year-old, Winston, who many of you have met, so my home is full of sermon illustrations. Uh, and uh, one of Winston's favorite movies is The Lion King. The Lion King. Spoiler alert's coming. Um, thank you. Uh, so the Lion King follows uh, Simba, who is the son of Mufasa, who's the Lion King. Simba is the, the Lion Prince, if you will. Um, and through a, a bunch of different circumstances, Simba's always getting into trouble and needs to be rescued by Mufasa. Always needs to be rescued by his father. And one day, through a combination of folly, trickery, and naivete, uh, Simba is in trouble again, and Mufasa has to come and rescue him, but in the process, Mufasa is killed. And Simba, full of shame at what he feels like he's done, causing his father's death, runs away into the wilderness to be in exile, away from the kingdom, because he can't bear the shame of what he's done. He gets out there, he meets Timon and Pumbaa, and Timon and Pumbaa have a great saying, it's a kuna matata, and you know what that means. I know you're Presbyterians, it's, and it means, there we go, come on, I got some people in here. It means no worries, and you think, man, this is great. Uh, you know, Simba is going to live in a van down by the river, uh, he's going to start a blog, uh, deconstructing the monarchy, it's going to be really good, he'll do um, a few interviews, he's going to do, uh, he's going to become a vegan, this is great, I'm really happy about uh, Simba, he's really le left the past behind, and he's going to live in this new world where there's no worries, he doesn't have to think about the past anymore. But then, as he's out there, he meets this wily monkey named Rafiki. And Rafiki comes out and he says, Simba, you're not going to believe this, but your father is alive. And Simba says, there's no way he's alive. I saw the body. He was dead. And Rafiki says, Simba, your father is alive. Come with me and I'll show you. And so they run into this field and there Mufasa is in the clouds. He's voiced by James Earl Jones. So it's quite a, quite a spectacle. And Mufasa comes out to Simba and he says, Simba, you've forgotten me. And Simba says, there's no way I could forget you. You're the most important person in my life. I think about you every single day. Mufasa says, Simba, you've forgotten me. And Simba says, you don't understand. You mean everything to me. I couldn't possibly forget you. And Mufasa says, Simba, you've forgotten me because you've forgotten who you are. And Simba says, no, 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 it's my fault. I'm the one who caused the accident. I'm the reason you're not here. I, and Mufasa says, Simba. You've forgotten me. You've forgotten who you are. You're my son. My blood runs in your veins. And so you belong on Pride Rock. You have a place. And it's on Pride Rock. And it's not because of your spiritual resume. It's not because of all the qualifications you have to be king. It's not because of all the great things that you've done. But it's because of who's in you. Brothers and sisters, don't forget Jesus. 
He's the one who's in you. And if he's in you, you have a place in this kingdom, not because of the spiritual resume you can build up, not because of all the great things you can do for the kingdom, not because of your wealth, not because of your status, not because of all the things that you've achieved or all the things you haven't achieved, but because of who's in you. That's the hope of your glory. Christ in you. Our struggle is believing that. Because if I don't, I don't know about you, but you and I, I think, are pretty good at trying to get away from Jesus, trying to get away from the cross, trying to get away from him and trying to build up our own spiritual resume. And there's two things that Paul warns us about. He talks about this as Christian maturity. He says in verse 28, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. What is it to be mature? Well, Paul warns us about two things that can get in the way. First, chapter 2, verse 3, uh, he says, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This, uh, this verse requires a little bit of context. One of the things that would happen in the first century is the Christians would come, Paul or some other missionary would come, they would proclaim Christ, people would be received, they would receive Jesus, they would be baptized, they'd start a church, and then the missionary would move on to proclaim the gospel in another place. And this group would come behind, known as the Gnostics. Gnostics from the Greek word meaning knowledge. You can impress your friends at parties with that. Um, Greek word meaning knowledge, and they would say, oh, you believe in Jesus. That's wonderful. That's great. You're off to a great start. You're on the first rung of the ladder. You've got your foot through the door. Now, if you will just do the rituals that we show you, if you'll just pray the prayers that we show you, if you will just sing the songs that we tell you, if you will just do the different things that we tell you to do, you'll have an experience, an ecstatic experience, and you'll see the hidden and secret things of God. You'll see all the mysteries. Those people who believe in Jesus, they, they, got, they got a good start. But if you really want to know the deep things about God, you really want to know the secret things, come and join our group. We'll show you the real secret things. We'll show you all the things that they don't tell you about down over there. And Paul says, no, 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 no. This is the mystery. It's Christ. This is the mystery. You don't need a new experience. You don't need something different. You don't need existential experience. Hear me, God wants to engage you in your emotions. Your emotions are good things. But what can sometimes happen is we move from uh, God engaging us in our emotions into emotionalism, mm -hmm, where God, we just depend on God loves us by if we're feeling it that week. You know, did we have our quiet time that week? And did our quiet time, do we really feel like scripture was leaping off the page? Then God must really be for us. And if it was really tough, we skipped our quiet time, we didn't make it to church, all of a sudden, man, God must not love us. I have this um, conversation with a student at least five times a semester. It goes something like this. Um, hey, um, I've been in college, and since uh, I had a really great experience at my home church, and now I'm in college, and now I don't feel it anymore. It. I don't feel it anymore. I'm doing all these things. I'm praying all the prayers I prayed in high school. I'm singing all the songs we used to sing at my old church. I'm even getting up extra early to pray. I've never read my Bible like this before, and I still don't feel it anymore. 
And I normally say two things. The first one is, hey, this is normal. Part of the Christian life is recognizing the proper place of our emotions and sometimes knowing what we believe even when we don't feel it. That's a normal part of Christianity. But the other thing I point out is to say, um, did you notice, have you thought about switching the pronouns of that sentence? They're like, what do you mean switching the pronouns? Like, well, did you notice who the subject of the sentence was in all of that? It was I. I've been doing this. I've been doing that. I have done all sorts of things. My spiritual resume looks really good right now. Why don't I feel it? Why don't I feel it? And Paul says, no, 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 you don't, you don't understand. Christian maturity isn't about building your spiritual resume. It's about constantly returning to Christ, recognizing that he's in you and he's with you even when you don't feel it. That's Christian maturity, constantly going back to the cross. One commentator, he says it like this. He says, Paul answers the demand for the richest Christian experience of God that it's permissible for human beings to have. When we have begun to grasp the greatness of Christ and then grasp the closeness of the union we have with him, he in us and we in him, we can ask of God no more. Every experience God wants you to have is in Christ. That's the first thing, existential experience. The second thing in verse 4, I say this that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. I say this that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. This is a little bit closer to home. We're, we're good Reformed Presbyterian folk around here. And uh, sometimes we really like to build up our spiritual resume with theological learning and philosophical education. Uh, I went to seminary. I enjoyed almost every minute of seminary. It was a great experience. I, I, I enjoyed it. I'm not against theological learning. But sometimes I think what can happen is you come into church, you're converted, and we say, that's wonderful. Isn't that great? You're, you're converted. You believe in Jesus. Well, guess what? We've got a 12-week systematic theology course we'd like to get you in. And then we have a six-month Bible program we'd like you to start. We then have a six-month small group leadership training seminar we have a, a year-long discipleship program. Um, we have a leadership retreat. Um, and then we have six weeks of evangelism, two uh, seminary courses that we'd like you to take. And then maybe then you can evangelize your neighbor. Maybe then you'll be equipped to talk to your neighbor about Jesus. Again, hear me. I love theological education. I love Sunday school. I love all of it. But don't think it replaces Jesus. Christian maturity is realizing that everything we need is in Christ. One commentator says this, to realize that one is complete in Christ is sure proof against the dangers of immature Christianity. The constant search for spiritual novelties, the unnecessary anxieties and fears over status or requirements, the pride over small achievements which threaten Christians in the modern world no less than in the ancient world. Christian maturity is seeing that everything God wants to do for you Everything God wants to say to you, everything God wants you to know is in Christ. That's Christian maturity, is getting a hold of this mystery and constantly going back to it over and over and over again and realizing that it has no end. There is no limit to the depth of what Jesus has done to you, for you. Think what spirit dwells within thee. Think what Father's smiles are thine. Think what Jesus died to win thee. Think on those things and know 
that he's qualified you, he's called you, that you belong, that God wants to use you where you are, not because of the resume that you've built, not because of all the great things that you've done, not because of all your gifts and your talents or lack thereof, but because of the one who is in you and for you. That's Christian maturity. And finally, and most quickly, we have Christian ministry. Verse 29, Paul says, for this I toil, this is my ministry, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. In verse 28, he said, him we proclaim. This is Paul's ministry. If you want to know what Paul's ministry was about, if you thought, man, it would be great, uh, it would be great to hear Paul preach. I would love to hear Paul preach. I can tell you what the one point of his sermon was. It was Jesus. Him we proclaim. That's, that's Paul's definition of ministry, his proclamation of Jesus. He says elsewhere, I, des- I decided to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's Christian ministry. Having this mystery revealed to us, we're called to go into all the world, to all the places to tell people. Tell people, hey, there's not, not just a new philosophy, not a new experience, but something much deeper. That the God of the universe, the one who created and sustains all things, the one who upholds all things, the one through whom and for whom all things were made, wants to come and dwell in you. That's what college students at USF need to know. That's what your friends and your neighbors need to know. That's what your coworkers need to know. But it's not just all on you. Look quickly, verse 29, he says, I str- for this I toil, struggling with all his energy, all his energy that he powerfully works within me. See, it's not just... Jesus who brought you into the kingdom. It's not just Jesus who sustains you in the kingdom, but it's Jesus who empowers you in Christian ministry. He's the one who upholds you. He's the one who's in you, and he's the one empowering you as you go and speak, as you go and tell, as you go and love others. He's the one who's with you and for you. Brothers and sisters, don't forget Jesus. He's in you, and that's the hope of your glory. Let's pray. Lord, what a deep and sometimes difficult truth to believe that you are in us, that you're with us, that you're for us, that all the things that we do cannot make you love us and care for us more than you do. Would you let that truth sink down deep into our hearts that we might rejoice, that we might be glad at the love that we have found in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.